Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you get that question a lot? I remember when I was a kid, I got that question a lot. What do you want to be when you grow up? Anybody answer a productive member of society? <laughs> Anybody? No. Now, you, when people ask you that question, they're usually asking you, you know, what kind of job or vocation you want to do, right? And as I got older, after people would ask me, you know, that answer would change, right? It, it's one thing when you're a really little kid, and then it maybe is another thing, and maybe it changed to something else. You know, by the time I was in middle school, it had changed to be an architect. I wanted to be an architect. And that's a whole story why I didn't become an architect. But God had other, other plans, um, particularly taking me to biology and then uh, to being a pastor. So it, it can change, and it does change. And, and God uses different things in our lives to help us to dis- decide and discern what we want to be. But, you know, when I'm thinking about this question... A lot of the ways that we answer what we want to be when we grow up is often connected to helping people. Have you ever thought of that? You know, maybe at one time you wanted to be a farmer. Maybe you still want to be a farmer. And farmers help provide food for people to eat. Maybe you want to be a firefighter. And firefighters help protect people and property from fire from destruction, maybe a police officer, right, who enforced the law, which helps keep our communities safer than they would be without. Nurses who care for people who are sick. You know, we could go on and on about different things, different ways that we see ourselves as we might be growing up and wanting to do. And the more and more we get a vision of our vocation as kids more and more as we grow, it becomes not connected to how we understand our work will impact others. I don't know when that changes, right? At some point as we grow, the, it often changes, our vision for our vocation often changes from how those things that we might want to be and do help and serve others to how it will impact me, how it will serve me. Some point in our lives, what we do for work often becomes more about how much it will do for me or how much money we can or will make and less about how our work or money will help and serve others. Making money, having wealth isn't bad, but if we're not careful, it will consume our lives, Jesus reminds us. This morning, Jesus tells us a story, a story about a rich man and a poor man, a man with great wealth and a man that has nothing, a man who has everything and everything to give, and a man who has nothing with nothing to offer anyone. So let's read Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen 
and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Ooh. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able and none may pass across from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the word of life, Jesus. Lord, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear eyes to see, Lord, that we would be transformed by your word and conformed to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Just real quick before we get going, Eric, did you find my sermon? Okay, great, sorry. Just want to make sure that our a translate, translator <laughs> has the sermon this morning. So last week, we were in a kind of interlude between two parables, right? Jesus is addressing the Pharisees who scoffed at his teaching. And Jesus warned us at the end of the previous parable, the parable about the dishonest steward, that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. And so we are confronted with the question last week Does Jesus have your exclusive loyalty? We saw from our text that because Jesus is the good news of the kingdom, we can live integrated lives. We saw how Jesus showed us what a disintegrated life looks like the life of a Pharisee, and what an integrated life looks like in Him. And this morning, Jesus moves from that into this parable or a, a story about a rich man and a poor man, a story that highlights what Jesus has been teaching these past few weeks. 
a story that should get us to ask who or what has our heart or our life? Who or what has our heart or our life? Are we like the rich man, which represents the Pharisees who are lovers of money? Are we like the dishonest steward who finally understood the proper use of the wealth that he has been given to steward? Are we serving God or are we serving self or money? Are we like Lazarus, beggars, knowing the depth of our need? We see that because Jesus is the resurrection, our lives belong to him. Because Jesus is the resurrection, our lives belong to him. And I first want us to look at this parable, how our lives belong to him through the rich man, poor man. There's actually basically two movements. It's almost like two acts to this parable, to this story. You have the first act, which we'll look at as the rich man, poor man. And then we have the second act, which is the life to come. So Jesus starts out with a story with, by saying that a rich man, clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. You might know that purple cloth was extremely expensive because of how the dye was made. And so for people to dress in purple was showing their exclusive wealth, how wealthy they, they were. And so Jesus helps us to understand that this man was very wealthy. He dressed in purple and fine linen. It's basically, you know, his outer clothing was purple and his underwear was linen. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Like he, he dressed to impress. He was a man living like a king, right? King, the purple was the color of the king. And so this man was living as if he himself was a king. And if we're observing the scene, if we don't read any further, or we read maybe the next passage about Lazarus being with sores and being at his gate, if we don't read any further in the parable, how would you, what would be your conclusion about this scene? If you didn't know anything else that happens in the story, what would your conclusion be about these two people? We probably don't want to admit it, but we might conclude that God has blessed the rich man. While the poor man might be the object of God's judgment, right? This poor man who sits at the gate doing nothing, who has sores and has dogs licking his sores, must be lazy or sinful. He's paying for his depravity with his poverty. That was how many people understood this man's state in Jesus' day. It was his fault. He had done something. He had sinned in some way. It has brought this catastrophe upon him. And this rich man must be living a life in obedience to God because he has been blessed. 
appearances can be deceiving. As I said earlier, the rich man represents the Pharisees who were earlier described as lovers of money. And the poor man is all those of Jewish society that Jesus has made a special focus of his ministry. Right? But it's not really the fact that this man is rich that Jesus is pointing, is, is drawing our attention to. It's how he used his riches. How does Jesus describe this man going back to what we said before? He's clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously, what? Every day. This man is serving money, not God. He's squandering the resources God gave him on himself. He's not being a faithful steward, right? Feasting isn't wrong, but it's reserved for special occasions, for weddings, for arrivals of guests, for other big events in one's life where you feast to show your excitement and gratitude and love for others. But this man is feasting every day, whether he's inviting others into his home or not. It is all about him. And this poor man, Lazarus, Jesus tells us he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Right? The picture that Jesus gives us is a man who can do nothing for himself. Right? He is placed at this rich man's gate with the hope that something might fall off the table and someone in the house might be merciful and gracious enough to pick it up off the floor and bring it to him. Perhaps he's crippled. We don't know. He's at this gate where people come and go in the hope that the rich man and his friends will have pity on him and give him something from their table. Right? Like the prodigal son, he longs to be satisfied with the humblest of food, the crumbs from the rich man's table, but the rich man totally ignores him. Right? Look how helpless this man is. Right? Jesus is trying to give us a picture of how helpless this man is that this other man will not even give him the crumbs of his table. He's so helpless, he can't even keep the dogs away from licking his sores. It's pretty gross. I think Jesus wants us to squirm a little bit. This first section of the story is pretty plain. Right? Our faith, our repentance, our love of God will be shown by the fruit of our lives. 
where our loyalty lies by how we use what God has given us, right? It's building on what Jesus has already taught over the last several weeks that we've been looking at chapters 15 and 16, right? How do we use what God has given us? Do we use it merely for ourselves, for our own pleasure, for our own gain? Or do we, do, or do we use it to serve those who are in need? Those who God puts in our path each and every day. The second part of the story begins at death. <laughs> the life to come. Right? Both, both men die, right? And they find themselves in two very different places, one in Hades and the other at Abraham's side, or what we might call heaven. And the name of the poor man, the only man who's actually named in the story, might, give us a, might have given us a hint to where this man would end up when he died, because Lazarus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Eleazar, which means the one whom God helps. This poor man intimately knew his need, and the God who helps those who are in need comes to him and carries him to his rightful home. And we find out that the rich man's wealth isn't a sign of God's blessing but in reality, it was the sign of his demise. He is in Hades, a place of torment, anguish from the flame. In Greek thought, it was the place of the dead. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, it was used to translate the Hebrew term Sheol. And in the Old Testament, that can mean merely just the place of the dead, like where you're buried, or it can be, mean the place of the unrighteous dead. It's contrasted with heaven in Psalm 139, verse 8, and Amos chapter 9, verse 2. And in the context of this parable that Jesus is telling, it refers to the place of the unrighteous dead. And so we find these two men, one in heaven with Abraham and one in Hades, being tormented. And he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and he calls out to Abraham, have mercy on me and do what? Send that poor guy Lazarus to help me. It's interesting that the rich man asks Abraham to have Lazarus do what the rich man never did. Right? How, just imagine how many times at this rich man's gate did Lazarus cry out, have mercy on me. And the rich man never relieves his suffering. 
Notice that the rich man knew this poor man's name. <laughs> right? He uses his name in speaking to Abraham. He knows this man's name. And yet, he was unwilling to relieve his suffering in this life. We should assume by the way Jesus is telling this story that he was fully aware of who this man was and the continual suffering that this man experienced in this life and refused him mercy. And the merciless now desires mercy, but Abraham said, you cannot receive it. His cry for mercy, notice, isn't really a cry of repentance, but a plea for help that results from the situation that he finds himself in. In fact, you could even say that his arrogance has not yet been overcome or defeated because he views Lazarus as the one who should come and serve him, even in his torment, to cool his tongue with a drop of water. And yet Abraham says, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Abraham is saying to the rich man that Lazarus is now comforted. It's the, in the Greek, it's the divine passive, meaning that God himself is comforting Lazarus. He is in the arms of the, his heavenly father being comforted while the rich man is in anguish. And Abraham's response should remind us of the beatitudes that Jesus gave back in Luke chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Plain and his beatitudes and his woes. Blessed are you who are hungering now for you will be satisfied. But woe to you rich ones for you have already now received your full consolation. The rich man, Abraham is, says, is getting what he deserves. And at this point, the rich man, I think, realizes what is going on. Right? He realizes that it's not... It's not a sense of who gets what they deserve necessarily, right? Because is Lazarus even getting what he deserves? What did he do in this life to deserve to be at your side, Abraham? And so he says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. And for him to warn them, so they will not come to this place of torment. The rich man shows that he has finally understood that his repentance 
that is critical. Right? It's repentance that is required, right? To warn them or to, um, or to uh, tell them to preach to them so they might not come to this place of torment. He believes that if Abraham would send Lazarus back to them to witness to them of the torment that their brother is under and in, that they would repent and be at the side of Abraham, would be in the consolation of God, comforted by our Heavenly Father. But Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God, Abraham says. They have the word of God. They have what, all that they need. All they need to do is be hearers of the word. All that they need to know about the kingdom of grace and the mercy of God has been written. And if they don't have ears to hear that, they are not going to listen, even if someone should rise from the dead. The word of God is sufficient, Jesus is saying. To know who he is, to know who the Heavenly Father is, to know what it is that God desires of us to come into his kingdom. And even if someone rose from the dead, they will not be convinced. Jesus, telling this story, the people there would not have fathomed that he's speaking about himself. But for those of us who over the centuries have read the gospel of Luke should be first and foremost in our mind that it is Jesus speaking of himself here. That he is the one who rose from the dead. That he is the one who has come back from the dead to call us out of darkness into life, to call us to repentance, and yet even the sign of someone rising from the dead is not believed.
And he has given us his very word that we might know and believe in him. You know, this story is about the life to come. As I said, it teaches us how we should use our resources, but it's also about the life to come. Heaven and hell. We don't often talk about hell. I'm not what you'd call a fire and brimstone preacher. And yet Jesus gives us a pretty clear picture. He describes it as a place of torment. He describes it as a place that is a great chasm has been set between there and the life to come in him. And Jesus warns us, even though it's a story about two men that we don't know were real or not, he warns us that this is a real place. And Jesus is giving us a warning here, as he has often done. He's given us a warning after he has described the beauty and the glory and the love and the mercy of his kingdom, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the dishonest steward. He has given us pictures of how gracious the Father is, of how loving and compassionate the Father is, of how beautiful his kingdom is. He has given us these pictures. And yet there are some like the Pharisees who are still scoffing at him. So Jesus gives a warning to the Pharisees then, to the Pharisees now, to all those who are outside of his kingdom. Look, if the beauty and the glory do not call you to come, let me warn you of the fire and the torment that is on the other side. If this beauty of the kingdom, being in the presence of the God, your Father who loves you and died for you, isn't enough to draw you to repentance and new life, heed the warning of the rich man. He's warning not just his brothers, but all of us that we do not want to receive what we deserve but through repentance and faith in Jesus, we will receive life that we do not deserve. The resurrection of Jesus is the sign. His word is faithful and true. Believe it. This life in the kingdom 
that Jesus calls us to begins now and is forevermore. And in the here and now, Jesus reminds us that money, that wealth is a resource, not a reward. It is to be used, not hoarded. It is to serve, not to be served. And in that, this parable is ultimately about the heart, a repentant heart, a heart that knows where your treasure is. Where is your treasure being stored? Jesus warns that treasure stored for self leads to torment, while treasure given for God yields life, life everlasting. Not because we buy or earn our way into the kingdom, but because we've already surrendered our hearts, our lives to the resurrected king. And we steward all that he has given us as a sign of his mercy and grace in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you do not give us what we deserve in Christ. Lord, that you call us to repentance and new life in him. And Lord, that you said all those who come to you Lord, are promised promised to be comforted in the arms of your Father, our Father. May we heed that welcome. May we know the warning as well. And Lord, may we believe it and share it with all those like the rich man's brother who need to hear. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond.